So, Bob, I have some questions for you from the patrons, and I thought we would read those questions into the microphone so that the computer records them as we speak these questions. And then also into the microphones and having the computers record, we could record our responses to those. And then I would post this on the Internet so people could listen to it and find some value in it. What do you say, Bob? I say, great. You you emailed me some questions this week. Is that the kind of questions we're going to be looking at? Yeah. I did a great. rare thing by actually doing a good job by prepping you with the questions so that you weren't just being sprung upon in the moment. Um, you see, if that changes things. <laughs> <laughs> so the first question is from Patron Anne. She writes, if you were forced, if you were forced to diagnose the coronavirus according to its way of interacting with humans, what label would you use? End of question. By the way, I love this question. We, we tend to get some wonderful questions, but we, we usually don't get easily answerable questions like this. <laughs> I, always, I always try to encourage people, like, love the heavy questions. It's also nice to get some light questions every now and then. So, Bob, if you had to diagnose the coronavirus based on the way it's interacting with people, what label would you use, Bob? Oh, interesting. So the virus, what it does is it sort of attacks people willy-nilly and spreads and is sort of invasive and causes people to hold up in their homes. So it's like an avoidant personality maker. I mean, I guess. Uh, it's a social distancer. I don't know. I, I guess the only thing I could think is it's something antisocial, but <laughs> something about that feels kind of wrong to say i don't know no that's what i would say and any social personality disorder things that and maybe histrionic given that it has (laughs) garnered so much attention Uh Uh, (laughs) you know um Uh and things that aren't in the dsm but clinicians will use as sadistic personality or psychopathic personality right uh, based on the things you're that you're saying i mean it, it seems to kill without remorse uh, uh-huh. It definitely likes to terrify people. So, you know, if we were to... Hey, it's like if, the ten bu- Ted Bundy of illness. Right. Okay, so I have another question here for you, Bob. Patron Kathleen, mm-hmm. she says, can you please describe your ideal patient? Bob, what's your answer to that? Yeah, this one I remembered. Uh, I was looking through my email and I remembered this question coming across. My ideal patient. Um, well... I think somebody that is earnest, that, um, you know, um, they might not know what they want because that's therapy, but someone who's earnest and sincere, um, who's uh, willing to kind of sit and dig in, um, if it's a couple, that they have a vested interest in their relationship, that they try hard when they're there, but, you know, I think that. I, I don't know any clients that come to my office and phone it in. And if they do, we would just end up talking about that. It's like, well, it doesn't seem like you really want to be here, you know, and that could be a really interesting conversation. And then um, pay me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I had a hard time answering this question because I think in my earlier years, I would have mm-hmm. had a more easier time answering because I remember saying things like when I first started as a therapist, I wanted to treat musicians because I was a 24-year-old Seattle rock musician and yeah. I was I was in a band and I thought that 
musicians had a lot of mental issues. And I also thought that bands had a lot of relationship between the band members themselves issues. Yeah. And my ideal client back then was to work with a band. Like there was a documentary with Metallica when they had, and they had a therapist that was helping them get along better so that, so that they wouldn't break up. You know, you wonder if a therapist got involved, the Beatles, would they have stayed together? That kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Or with Fleetwood Mac, would they have had so much trouble in their relationship? And uh, that was my ideal client. And I also certainly had a lot of clients that I that I didn't appreciate that much. You know, clients who didn't want to be in therapy, or yeah, who, or who wouldn't show for their appointments. I would, you know, drive to my agency. I'd you know rush through traffic, get up early, get ready. I'd, you know, pack a lunch, get get to the office, and then my first three clients wouldn't show, and I'd and I'd just be sitting there. Sorry, uh, and I would show up to work, and uh, uh, they wouldn't. Uh, the first three clients wouldn't come to the office, and I'd just be twiddling my thumbs. Or early clients in the first few years of practicing, there would be a. You know, a set of clients who would be really defensive with me, you know, just mm-hmm. uh, just really kind of nasty with me or really just hostile or threaten me, you know, in my early career. So uh, I would definitely say back then, well, I don't want clients like that. Those people aren't fun. So but in the past, I don't know, 10, 15 years, I pretty much every client I've had has been an ideal client. <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, I, at, at first I thought, well, I can't really say the truth because what if my clients are listening? But then I thought about it another couple seconds as I was rolling through my internal Rolodex of my clients. And I thought, you know what? There's, there's not really, I don't prefer any of my current clients over any, anyone. Yeah. And I think it's a privilege of being in private practice and being established mm-hmm. to you. One, I think you just tend to attract a certain kind of client who really wants to work and is, quote unquote, higher functioning in a certain way and um, doesn't have the, the sort of chaos that agency clients will sometimes have. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's much easier to work with clients. You know, at agency, for example, you might have a 16-year-old who has attempted suicide a couple times, has run away from home, is getting into crimes and getting kicked out of school and uh, it's just a lot of worrisome stress for a therapist of like oh crap what do i do now whereas you know my clients in the past 10 years have been mainly like they really want to work on stuff they're very caring people they Mm -hmm. they really care about about others they aren't defensive with me um really they're really easy to connect with. I find the sessions to be to, to flow really well, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, you know, I can't remember the last time where it was, I mean, it must have been years ago. The last time I, I had a session where I, I was sitting there going like, OK, now what do we talk about? Remember, remember those <laughs> remember those kinds of clients back in the day? <laughs> I, had, I worked at an agency where they had a contract with the school district to provide you know, um, on-site counseling service to the kids that were in, they called them the SBD classrooms. I don't know if they still call it that, but it was socially and behaviorally disordered kids. Yeah. I don't, I, that's such an awful label, but nonetheless. Well, I think it was severely 
the behavior severely severe behavior disordered children oh i got it wrong okay i don't know i don't know maybe you're right but I, that's what i remember it being called which is a well, worse three days label. a week i had to go to the two days to the high school and one day to the middle school and be in the classroom and you know that would have been fine except that neither the kids nor me knew what the hell i was there for so i used to dread going that was i don't think there was anything wrong with the kids or me but the situation was weird to all of us and we didn't know what to do so that was that was a nothing to do with the client the potential clients because these were kids who did not ask for counseling we were just sort of thrust upon them and i thought about it a lot like on the surface it seems like a great idea provide in school counseling service to kids that have trouble with behavior yeah great idea except that what you don't have is a client you don't have somebody that's volunteering so I don't think they knew what to make of me, and I didn't know what to make of the situation. And the teachers were frustrated and disappointed because whatever it is that they hoped we would do, we didn't do. And it was altogether a, a fuck up and, and a waste of time. And I vowed I would never go in again. And actually what my boss said to me at the end of the school year is, yeah, yeah, we're not sending you back. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's really sad because these kids are really suffering and the teachers mm -hmm. are suffering and the parents mm -hmm. are suffering and it's natural yeah. for them to say, well, let's bring a therapist in. Uh, sure. And then we show up and we're like, uh, do these kids actually want to talk with me? Cause I'm yeah. pretty sure that they don't. <laughs> and I'm just kind of standing around trying to insert myself into the situation and, mm -hmm. Uh, this isn't what therapy is supposed to look like. I'm not trained. Yeah. I, I'm not a. I'm not a song and dance entertainer, uh, <laughs> and I don't have a role. I don't even have any power, and I don't want power in the situation. Yeah, yes. Yeah. It takes a very you know specific sort of professional to blend well into a situation like that, and you and I mm. don't have the training or the will to. <laughs> do that kind of work yeah I, i've i've absolutely been there too yeah you've been there too yuck yeah i mean yeah. not only for sbd kids but also for ang ang they call it anger management i don't know what they call mm. it today but i mean obviously anger management is a term but they would uh, for whatever reason like all the kids that had the were the most trouble would be put into this anger management group at these local high school and middle schools that were near my agency. And I was sent by the agency to lead these group therapy uh, meetings. And they were called anger management, but really what they were was uh, learning how to, um, you know, regulate your emotions so that you don't get in trouble in class, which I guess oh. is kind of anger management in a sense. But, but essentially I had 20 of the worst middle schoolers under my, uh, you know, sort of direction for yeah. an hour and a half in the middle of the day. Mm. And that's a very difficult thing to do. Anyway, but to, to answer the question, uh, Kathleen, patron, uh, ideal patient, willing to work, yep. outwardly loving, easy to connect with, uh, and working on relationships primarily because, you know, someone could be really easy to work with, but they all they want to do is talk about like quitting cigarette smoking or mm. all they want to do is talk about i don't know just something that's not as interesting to me as uh a development of self attachment security relationship mm. uh reducing conflict improving 
intimacy and sexual, uh, you know, intimacy mm-hmm. and um, connecting with who you are. Those kinds of things are, are I find that be fascinating conversations to have with my clients. Yeah. My therapist says, so I get to sit with you for an hour and talk about these things and be interested and curious and care about you and really enjoy your company. And then you pay me. That's a good day. (laughs) Okay. So Bob, here's another email from an upper tier patron. It's a bit of a long one. So buckle in here for a second. Sure. They write several months ago, I experienced a significant increase in my depression and anxiety symptoms. I wanted to die and I was struggling to function at work in my relationships and at home. I've been suicidal for about 13 years, so I already had a plan in place and knew to get the materials to follow through with the suicide. I had no social support. I told my therapist that I needed more help and asked if we could increase our sessions to twice a week or explore intensive outpatient programs. My hope was that this would prevent a downward spiral by increasing the amount of care I was getting. My therapist, she said that she does not see clients twice a week unless the client is likely to attempt suicide in the seven days between sessions. Since I was not in an imminent danger, according to her, I continue to see her once a week. She didn't think intensive outpatient was appropriate either, but we did not have a chance to discuss it further. However, she did say that seeing me once a week would keep me from being dependent on therapy. Why do most therapists see their patients for 50 minutes once a week? Is there research to support this? Is it a matter of convenience for scheduling and billing? Does seeing seeing a client twice a week versus once a week have any effect on how quickly they make progress? I guess I'm asking because so far, my only options have been 90-minute sessions once a week or involuntary 72-hour hold in a hospital. I'm wondering why there isn't an option in between those two extremes. End of email. Bob, what do you think? Wow. This is a great email and fascinating thing to think about. But the first thing that comes to mind is, oh, this poor person and the hell they went through. Um, I think therapists have some weirdo idea about clients becoming dependent and thinking that that's a bad thing. Actually, that's a good thing. That means that you've got a relationship where there's trust and uh, security. And for folks with these kinds of problems, often there hasn't ever been anybody that they could count on, that they could turn to, that, that would be there for them. That, that, and so, so when you're asking for twice-weekly sessions and your therapist having this response, it gives me pause. And one of the things that I'm thinking about is that 30% of suicides are completed within five minutes of the decision to kill yourself. So 30% of people who kill themselves, who actually succeed in killing themselves, only 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 give it five minutes of, of consideration before they act. And um, so so when, when a person says, well, you know, you're not in danger for seven days, I'm thinking, well, you know, it's really hard to assess that with any kind of um, consistent accuracy. It might be true today, but not true tomorrow or even tonight. So um, uh, that, that, I'm sorry that you went through that. And um, I don't mean to criticize your therapist, but um, at the same time, I don't think that your request is at all unreasonable. And 
I think that there's two things that happen. One is there's actually another time of seeing somebody who cares for you, who gives you support. But even aside from that, when you make a request like that, which is kind of a vulnerable thing to do, your person, your therapist has a chance to kind of demonstrate with their willingness that they care about you. And that goes a long way. In other words, the yes has more to do with just, are we going to meet on Monday and Thursday? It's like, yes, I care about you. Yes, you're important to me. Yes, I want you to survive and your welfare and your well-being really matter, right? Like, what a great message. And unfortunately, therapists are products of American culture. And we have a weird notion about what it is to be a functional human we thrive on self-sufficiency, and we have sections in the bookstore that are called self-help, which I got to tell you, Kirk, I hate those books because I can never fucking finish them. I might have some motivation at the beginning to read this book. It's like this could really, and it might have really good information in it, but I can never see it through. And so if I ever want to learn anything, I've got to find somebody to teach me because I'm a relational human and I think I'm typical. So the idea that we are supposed to be these self-sufficient little packets of mental well-being, I think is false. That what it is to be an individual is, what it is to be a human is more than just to be an individual. It's to be a member of a community or family or whatever you want to call it. And therapy has the possibility of offering that kind of security and safety and care and love, if we want to call it that, which, you know, therapists have a hard time with that word too. Not me, but I think it's a fine word to use because it's not like we stop being people. Geez, I'm on a soapbox here. No, I love it. hundred billion percent. Yeah. I've been, I've been silently reveling in what you're saying and mm-hmm. because I've been on those soapbox many times as well. And the fact that you and I are friends and we see completely eye to eye on this issue. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's funny that we do because you come from, like, we met in grad school, we did training in grad school together, we shared a lot of classes together, and then you went into your career and I went into mine and they went these different tracks, you know, you're doing what you're doing, you know what I'm doing, and I noticed that you invited me on the podcast, what, it's been two and a half years now, we see eye to eye on a lot of shit, it's like you got where you are, your path, and I got where I am, my path, and yet our our paths are converging yet again, it's really heartening actually. Yeah, it is interesting because I think 10 years ago, 15 years ago, we might have seen things differently more often. Yeah, I think you're right. I think more often we would have. And I think um, probably one of the things that's happened is I've um, woken up to um, attachment as um, central. I remember used to see these trainings for attachment, attachment attachment-related therapies and, you know, disorders and whatever, and sort of like, yeah, 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 I don't know what the hell that is, blah, 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 back to my whatever I'm doing. Nowadays, that's all I think about. And you and I, that's one of the main ways in which we converge. Yeah. Yeah, I actually didn't realize that I had only recently seen the light regarding attachment. I think I always knew about corrective experiences and this sort of thing, but I think it's really been in the past five years that I've really understood it. And it was evidenced by, I was, we, we do reruns for the podcast on Sundays. And there was an episode of the podcast that was probably from, I don't know, seven years ago or something, eight years ago. And I was listening back to it because I'm always paranoid that I'm going to say something stupid on the podcast. And, (laughs) and so I was like, oh, God, you know, I I better listen to it. Maybe I need to, like, take this episode. I, You know, that's my hands get sweaty just kind of thinking about it. But anyway, 
Mm-hmm. I was listening back to it, and there was talk about attachment theory, and my responses or the way I was talking about it indicated that I I wasn't on board yet, and I mm-hmm. and I I think I understood the the baseline, or at least I intuited, because I think I've always worked on an attachment level with my clients. I mean, mm-hmm. I remember early clients with borderline personality disorder mm-hmm. in my that would have been 22 years ago that I absolutely would now call an attachment-based therapy program for yeah. that person. But yeah. I wouldn't have framed it that way. Uh, but another thing, in case people are wondering, uh, I also talked about dissociative identity disorder very briefly in a rerun episode. And I, I basically said something like, well, there's debate as to whether or not it exists or not. And I just want to go on record and say that for whatever I didn't I don't remember this, but in the intervening years, it was probably, I don't know, seven years ago, I studied dissociative identity disorder and treated people with it and had uh, some mentors who were specialists in it and fully am now on board with the notion that dissociative identity disorder exists mm-hmm. and that it's extremely real and the way it's described is extremely accurate and when you describe it to people they're like oh my god that is absolutely me now mm-hmm. can the uh, you know occasional one out of 10,000 cases be quote unquote faking it absolutely you, everyone fakes everything uh, occasionally <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, but the vast majority of people who have been diagnosed with it, uh, have it, and most people who have it are are without diagnosis and without treatment. Anyway, yeah. but I just want to pop in here and give the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. If you are thinking about suicide, call 1-800-273-8255. That's 800-273-8255. You can also do chat. You can do it anonymously, and people are there to help you. And like Bob says... The urge, when it comes on, people will attempt rather quickly after that urge. And you, and also, research finds that when people are able to get through those high, uh, intense, um, intentional moments um, where they intend on killing themselves, uh, they will be thankful that they got through it. They will, they will think whatever process got them through it, whether it was someone who helped them or a different perspective that they had that got them through it, or even just a distraction. People will say that I almost killed myself, but someone called me and and that distracted me and I, I would have been dead otherwise. I'm so glad that so-and-so called me. And so uh, make sure that you call the lifeline that or it, it go to your therapist, you know, work on a safety plan. It's really important to get through those times because like I said, the vast majority of people really are thankful that they got through those times alive. Um, but yeah, getting back to your email, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, I'm not going to reiterate everything Bob said, um, other than just to kind of summarize that, yeah, it is weird that in our culture, we value independence, we devalue dependence, which is the direct opposite of human nature and human health. Mm-hmm. And this notion of being dependent on therapy, I, I don't even know what that means. You know, I, I challenge anyone out there, please email me. What does dependent on therapy mean in terms of, ah. it, be, in terms of it being bad? You know, right. like give me an example of a client that was harmed 
by being quote unquote dependent on therapy. I'm guessing you can't come up with one other than some kind of cultural uh, criticism, like, well, you should be able to do things on your own. And if, unless it's something, you know, uh, if, it, if it's something like that, like, that's just silly. But, you know, I could imagine a, a very rare once in a million thing where maybe it's like they become dependent uh, and they they can't it actually you know they go to therapy just because they go to therapy for therapy's sake even though the therapy isn't really helping them like i guess now that i'm walking myself through it the only time when dependent or one of the times and maybe the only time dependency is a bad thing is when the therapist is a bad therapist (laughs) (laughs) right Uh like if you become dependent on a therapist that because i've actually seen that i've seen some people who become dependent on their therapist partially because their therapist is bad. Like their therapist fosters like a very friendship or even a romantic kind of relationship oh, with right. their clients and the clients become even more dependent because it's, it's now edging towards or is a romantic kind of relationship. And so it's involving a, a different set of dependencies. And right. so I could see that happening, but but as Bob says, dependency actually means therapy is working most yeah. of the time, not all the time. Good therapy means a strong relationship that allows people to have corrective emotional experiences. In order to have corrective experiences, the relationship has to be deep. And by definition, for a lot of people, that's going to mean that the clients are going to depend on their therapist. When I go to you know uh, my therapist, I depend on her. I, yeah. I need her. When I am upset about something and session is in three days, I am kind of bummed out. I'm like, I wish session was today because I depend on her. What the fuck is wrong with that, people? Anyway, so so getting back to kind of the core of your question here, anonymous upper tier patron, is you're saying, you know, my therapist says that she won't see me for any more than 50 minute sessions a week. Uh, And it's like there's either either one session a week or involuntary, you know, hold at hospital because I'm threatening to kill myself. Right. Uh, why isn't there anything in between? Well, the thing is, is right. there, it, there, it, there are things in between. Your therapist just is refusing to do that. Um, it's totally fine for therapy to diverge from 50 minutes once a week. I'll tell yeah. you that most of my clients are not 50 minutes once per week. Most of my clients are less than once a week, meaning every other week or once a month or something like that. Mm -hmm. And certainly when I would have a client who was a bit, you know, high risk of suicide, but not imminent, meaning, you know, imminent is is usually hospitalization. Uh, So if they are, you know, less than imminent risk, then I absolutely will increase sessions. In fact, a, a common suicide protocol prevention is to increase sessions per week. It's ex- it's explicitly stated in the standard of practice that uh, an in-between step between uh, hospitalization is to actually increase sessions per week, twice a week, three times a week. Now, it's totally fine if a therapist isn't willing to do that. You know, they might not be able to accommodate that yeah. th- they, because their, their week doesn't accommodate that. Maybe they don't want to be that sort of therapist because... That's just not what they got into this business to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe insurance, for whatever reason, won't pay for it. 
or if the therapist genuinely thinks it's overkill and a waste of time, that's, that's okay too. But they would have to justify that to the client. They'd have to say, look, my opinion is that would be overkill. And I, my opinion is that it actually wouldn't help you and it would be a waste of your time. And that's why I'm saying X, Y, and Z. Uh, but it doesn't sound like this therapist is saying that. It sounds like the therapist is just saying, no, it's unethical or something to do sort it more. Sort of a rigid stance. Yeah, like it's the standard of practice. Like, you know, no, you're asking for something that no therapist would do or should do, which is just oh. ignorant and and silly. Uh, now, we don't know because we're not there to talk to the therapist. So, uh, so know that. You can advocate for that. But I'm guessing your therapist isn't going to budge on that. And it sounds like you need more care, which is totally fine. Uh, I mean, at the very least, what you're expressing, client, is you have extreme spikes in suicidality. And you feel like one session a week is too little. And involuntary hospitalization is too much, um, especially on a weekly basis, right? So it's totally fine to get a second opinion. Go to another therapist if you want and ask them, you know, what would you, what would be your plan for me with my suicide prevention? Would it be more than once a week? Another thing right. is, and I don't know how your current therapist would feel about this, but you can have more than one therapist. There's a lot of weird ideas about that one too, that it's somehow inherently a bad idea, which is absurd. Uh, you know, I, if I had three therapists that I met with once a week, I guarantee you it would not hurt me. <laughs> <laughs> because if there was some inconsistent, you know, there's always the, it's like, well, what if, what if two people are giving inconsistent advice or something? Well, those therapists should be talking to each other. One, yeah. two, most clients can sift through that. You know, it's not like their brain's going to explode if, <laughs> you know, if one person says, I think you should do mindfulness. And the other person says, I think you should do corrective experiences. It's, it's not like your brain's going to, you know, explode from that contradiction or that seeming difference. Yeah. Uh, so uh, there's nothing wrong with seeing more than one therapist. Uh, there's, there's nothing wrong with seeing a therapist more than once a week. If you feel like you're not getting the care that you need to keep you safe, then definitely seek a second opinion in your area and get the care that you need to keep you alive because you absolutely deserve that. Yeah. You know, part of DBT has this explicitly put in. It's like sessions, session frequency is driven by client need, not by a protocol. So they often say in that, ther in that therapy that, that treatment ought to be principle-driven, not protocol-driven, so that we don't adhere to some weirdo rigid standard. And part of what's expected for folks who have trouble with suicide impulse and find themselves in that terrible kind of crisis is, you know, phone coaching. And um, so DBT people are often, you know, that's part of what they recognize that their job is. And so are happy to do that and willing to do that without operating outside their limits. But one of the things that they do is they give a real good, careful consideration to what their limits are. Because I think a lot of us don't think about well, what is my limit? We just sort of have this idea. And it's kind of in the cultural fabric now. People go to therapy once a week for 50 minutes. It's like the the the, the patron writing in is asking a really interesting question. Is this, why do we do that? You know, I think it's become kind of a convention 
And, you know, it's like part of um, why, why do people go to church on Sunday? Why do they go generally once a week? You know, like, why do we do that? You know, there's that probably has some historical context, but now it's just what's done, right? I don't know why we do it. And there probably is a convenience in billing and insurance to have sessions sort of, um, um, you know, standardized or whatever. But I don't, do you know of any research on this question? I think they're asking a really good question. Yeah, there is research on it, but it it's not definitive in this because it's yeah. so variable. It depends on the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, I will tell you that it's definitely a standard of practice to increase sessions when someone is high risk of suicide. Yeah, well, it's it, It's written in the protocols for suicide safety plans, right. increasing client contact care. Now, like I said, if a therapist doesn't have capacity or doesn't want to do that kind of work, yeah. to- totally fine. But that doesn't mean you, you just say, well, you're shit out of luck. It just means the therapist should be saying, uh, let's connect you with another therapist or right. maybe I'm not the right therapist for you or you know right. something along those lines, not just like right. – um, I think you're becoming dependent on therapy. I mean, what a ridiculous notion <laughs> when someone's yeah. suicidal and they need care. Like, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's too bad. Okay, so, Bob, I have another email here. Patron Belina from Gainesville, patron Belina. I think I accidentally uh, emailed her back and called her Belinda because oh. I didn't. Because you see Belina and it, it just looks like Belinda. Uh, and she was, uh, I think she pointed out, no, no, it's Belina. Everyone thinks it's Belinda. So I want to say, patron Belina from Gainesville writes, how often have you come across people in your personal lives who are either put off or intimidated to learn that you're a therapist. Does this come up? This has come up a lot. Is it a barrier for new relationships? How do you keep from therapizing your spouse and friends? How do you avoid overanalyzing everything? How does it affect the way that you handle conflicts? Bob, what do you think? I love this question, Belina. Well, it's actually several questions, and uh, I got a lot of thoughts brewing in my head. But the first thing I'm thinking about is I met my wife on Match.com. And part of our email interaction before we met face-to-face was, you know, what do you do for a living, et cetera. And I think in my profile, it said I was a therapist. And she found that really intimidating, like I'm going to sit with her and analyze her and, you know, find out what's wrong with her, et cetera, et cetera. And that felt scary to her. So she says to me in an email before we meet, so what made you become a therapist? And I gave my standard response, which is fucked up childhood. And she said it immediately put her at ease. And she thought, oh, okay, regular guy. I can go meet him and it'll be all right. Which, of course, you know. So um, most of my friends are therapists. Uh, Well, most. I don't know if most. Many of my friends are therapists. Many of my friends um, don't even know me from in that part of my life. And so they just relate to me like I'm Bob and don't really, um, I don't think, I don't imagine. Though, you know, I never asked. I don't imagine anybody on my bowling team that actually even really thinks much about what I do for a living or finds it, you know, relevant to um, bowling and having a beer and enjoying one another every Monday night. Um, The other question was, how do you avoid therapizing 
you know, I love this part too, because I don't. And um, I can be seduced by that, by thinking that because I have some training and some knowledge that my my analysis of people, um, you know, maybe even Colleen, it must be accurate. And one of the things that I'm constantly coming back to in my own therapy is my therapist will say to me, oh, yeah, yeah, therapists, they can get kind of like pseudo-psychologically minded and think that their opinions about people are, you know, relevant or um, accurate, and it all is a stand-in for avoidance. And, you know, time and again, I have found myself thinking that my assessments are important and they turn out to be an avoidance of me. And this has not happened to me in probably about 12 days. <laughs> the last time that happened to me where, where I was like, here I am again, thinking I know something. And then I kind of wake up and I'm like, and I said this to Colleen, I'm like, you know, I did it again. I'm thinking this and it turns out that, and she said to me, yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, very funny. Well, so do, um, do you want to share, do you want to share what it was? Oh, um, let me see. We were having a fight. And my assessment of, let's see, my assessment was that um, I'm the one that's willing to be vulnerable and Colleen's not willing to be vulnerable or something like that. And, and um, I so was you really had, kind you, of... So you had a clinical idea yeah. of, they're like, well, because of her traumas yeah. and I've done all this work right. and it, right. she's the, like, what was the inner dialogue with that? Yeah, no, it's pretty much what you just said. And... Um, I go to my own session and we're talking about it and uh, I yet again, and he's really decent about it. He doesn't like just try to, you know, nail me with it, sit down. Here's what's going on. He's like, Oh, you did it again. This is like a 30 minute conversation. Most of she's just validating me and validating me, and validating me. And I'm like, God damn, I'm, I'm doing it again. Aren't I? And he's like, yeah, you're doing it again. And we talked about that and it turns out I'm just scared. And I'm scared most of the time. So, you know, like my my weirdo attachment style um, will mask itself in um, these kind of pseudo assessments, right? And, you know, on the one hand, I'm kind of embarrassed by that and it's a little bit funny. But on the other hand, it's just a, a version of that that anybody would do. Because it's like the Wizard of Oz. You know, in the Wizard of Oz, where Dorothy and the gang, they're standing in front of the big booming voice with the fire and the smoke. And and the voice is booming at them and saying to them, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. And then the dog pulls the curtain aside, right? And you see this kind of vulnerable, doddering old guy. That's in everybody. This vulnerable part of ourselves that does not want to be seen, that is really scared. And so creates this wizard. And in my case, and I think most people's cases at least to some degree, there's they buy their own wizard. They buy that. And they can't see so easily. They've disowned, is another way to put it, their attachment needs and their attachment insecurities. And they might even have a point in their quote-unquote pseudo-assessments on the one hand. But on the other hand, they're really, we, or I should just say I, am missing the point. And that is, there's a part of me that needs something. So when I'm all focused on Colleen and what is she doing or what is she not doing that's correct or not correct or whatever, right? The question can be, what's going on behind my curtain? There's something there. And often I'm blind to it. I'm a pretty smart guy. I've been a client for longer than I've been a therapist. And I've been a therapist for 30 years. And I miss it because we're just kind of set up to miss it. That's just part of how it is. Makes me kind of sad. 
Well, yeah. When we're hurt, when we're scared, which is frequent, yeah, we have to do something to soothe ourselves. And uh, one of the things available to us is to fall back, at least for us therapists, on our yeah. intellectual conceptualization ability because it protects us from what we're terrified in the moment of, right. which is, fuck, is this my fault? Did I? Yes. Did I yeah. do this? Or am I not lovable and mm. I'm screwing this up? There's a, you know, there's a reason why, why one is terrified and why one would grasp for anything to save you from that, even if that means sacrificing the relationship lamb on the altar in the process. Mm-hmm. And, put. and so uh, it gets you through the dark times and then eventually, you know, with your therapist providing a corrective experience, you, you, you know, you hear it and you're like, oh, wait, I think I think I'm doing that thing again. Right. Yeah, and I think that's what I, I never understand what people are saying when they say, "How do you not overanalyze?" You know, people will often whenever they ask this question of us, they're like, "You know, what's it like to be a therapist, and how do you avoid overanalyzing things?" And I'm always like, "Well, what is that? I don't. I don't think I know what that means. What's the definition of overanalyzing?" And I think, I think that's what maybe they're referring to, which is this using your professional clout and lingo to <laughs> to attack people in a narcissistic manner to nice. to say well i know more about this and you are wrong and i have figured you out <laughs> and i don't have any problems and if if any therapist ever did that even with a client they are not being a good therapist so no. to to be a good therapist is to first rule zero recognize your own issues and how it's affecting yeah. your countertransference which really enhances a marriage i'm here to tell you <laughs> that the constant uh practice and conversations that bob and i have and other colleagues that i work with around what are my issues how do they come up what are my defense mechanisms what's my mm-hmm. attachment style what are my reactivities? In what way am I undifferentiated? How did? What was my part in that? I mean, the first question, or one of the questions, you know, one of the first questions I ask all of my supervisees when they're uh, presenting a, a case that they're struggling with is, well, what you know, what's the you in this problem? Nice. You know, how how are you involved in this issue? And it's a practice. It's not something that. You just achieve like I have now figured out countertransference. It's a a thing that you do. It's a behavior that you enact. It's a process you walk through every time. And to overanalyze in the way that I think people think might happen is actually completely counter to what a therapist is supposed to do. Uh, Our version of quote unquote analyzing is to take responsibility and to apologize well before we would have otherwise if we weren't trained as therapists to Mm. recognize our part and to own our feelings, know our feelings and to not put upon other people. Uh, Are we capable of being dicks to our spouses? Yeah, but that's when we're not analyzing. (laughs) That's when we're being defensive in a way that is not the the sort of uh, optimal or what we strive to be as a therapist, you know? Um, but I wonder if like 
a lot of psychology 201 students are walking around, quote unquote, and overanalyzing their friends, you know, (laughs) And, and then a lot of people are walking around going, oh, God, what's a therapist like? I mean, if if psych 201 is is creating this behavior like what's psych 701 gonna do to people when it really goes the other direction and i will tell you from from me i i don't think you were like this bob Mm. but i was absolutely like this before when you know for the time i decided to become a therapist it was early 1995 and i was 24 years old and basically just a college student at, you know, a, a batch, just right out of my bachelor's. And I, before actually entering graduate school, I was already identifying with the professional identity of being a therapist. And there's this video, and I've talked about this in the podcast before, where I am I am totally overanalyzing all my friends on video. It's a long, it's a long video of, it's like an hour and a half. It was like, it was, we were having a party at our house over the summer and it was kind of winding down. The party was, and, and, you know, Glover and Broadhead and those guys, they were, they were all sitting around and, uh, Lisa and all these other people file. And I'm sitting across the room they're sitting on the ground in my bedroom and I'm sitting on my chair and I'm basically like analyzing all of them. It's, it's, it's horrible. I mean, it is, <laughs> it is a horrible video and I, I've transferred the VHS to my computer. And when, <laughs> when I want to humble myself, I just watch yeah, that. Right. I'm just like, Jesus Christ, Honda, like <laughs> tone down the narcissism for crying out loud. But that's what I thought being a therapist was. But after sure. I went to graduate school, I, I transformed. I had a massive amount of paradigm shifts and one of them yeah. was this. And, and so, uh, understand people out there that therapists, good therapists, do the opposite of quote-unquote overanalyzing. But to get also get at your question, Patreon Blina, is, you know, uh, you said, does it come up a lot? Is it a barrier to new relationships? How do you keep from therapizing your spouses and your friends, overanalyzing? How, do, how does it affect the way you handle conflicts? So I'll tell you, similar to Bob, it doesn't come up that much anymore in terms of people reacting to me as a therapist. Um, well, one of the things is like, I don't meet new people that much anymore. <laughs> or, <laughs> or if I do, they're well aware of the fact that I'm a therapist. So, mm-hmm. uh, so there's that. But I think in Seattle, it's, it's kind of commonplace to be a therapist. It's not, oh, right. it's not unusual. Like I, I bet you most people in Seattle have at least one friend that's a therapist. So, I think it it doesn't it's not exotic it doesn't scare people it's like having a friend that's a lawyer or something you just it's not strange um, you know in other areas of the country it wouldn't be unusual if one of if you had at least some of your friends who had like machine guns you know um, in Seattle it'd be very unusual if you had a friend who had like uh, a a, a cabinet full of automatic rifles, you know, or a, a grenade or something. Whereas in certain communities, there's probably a lot of people who have that kind of thing. And so it's, it's very, we're very much acclimated. And sometimes when I step outside of Seattle and I mention the fact that I'm a therapist, I will get a reaction. There's a number of things I notice is when I, I'm like, oh, I'm not in Seattle anymore. Um, one thing is the therapist will be 
the fact that I'm a therapist will be exoticized. Another thing is the fact that I'm Asian will be exoticized, or the fact that I'm half Asian will be extremely exoticized. The other thing that I will get is my name. So in Seattle, when I say my name's Kirk Honda, I don't get a reaction. But as soon as I step outside Seattle or the West Coast, like outside of L.A., San Francisco, basically out of Asian-American you know, centers, then mm-hmm. I get comments. Oh, Honda. Hey, do you, do you own a Honda? <laughs> you know, like all those jokes. Uh, it's just like... <laughs> Funny, I don't even hear that in your name anymore. It's just like... Eh, yeah. yeah, totally. Um, and uh, <laughs> I ran into this recently... Uh, a friend of mine, an old friend of mine, I, I was watching um, a Russian Doll with Natasha Leggero. Do you know her? That actress? oh yeah, yeah, that was a good show. Yeah, and as I'm watching it, her, the she was reminding me of this friend of mine, Sarah, this Canadian friend of mine, and I couldn't stop thinking about her because she looks like her. She has that kind of big flock of red hair shock of red hair mm-hmm. she's kind of short and kind of scrappy and back in the day she would drink and smoke a lot and <laughs> there was she just had that kind of real rough attitude about things and and i just couldn't stop thinking about her and after i watched it i emailed her and i was just like i was watching this show and it just completely reminded me of you and she's like please tell me it's not natasha Legero." <laughs> or, <laughs> I don't know if I have her name right, but you know what I mean? Mm. I think that's the name. And she says, you know, please tell me it's not her. And I was like, oh, (laughs) crap. Well, of course, because she looks kind of like her, you know? And, of course, since Natasha Leggero has been famous, which has been a long time, probably like 20 years, she's been probably constantly getting that that reference, right? And now her old friend calls her up as as if it's a brand new revelation you know <laughs> and i and i didn't even have the heart to tell her i was like oh never mind don't <laughs> i won't tell you who you were reminding me of but um anyway so it doesn't come up that much anymore um uh in seattle but in the past for sure it definitely would come up in fact when I was first training to become a therapist, I was, you know, really interested in my studies at, in graduate school. And I was, I, I would ask my friends about, you know, things, because I was thinking about these things. And so my friends around me, I would sort of ask them similar questions like, you know, how, do, how does your brain work? Do you think this way? Because I'm just, I'm studying this new thing. And I was, I was just so excited. And, and a lot of my friends were just kind of would sort of play along. But one of my friends actually got really angry at me one time. Mm-hmm. And I think he saw the writing on the wall, which is like, oh, crap, Kirk's going to become a therapist. He's he's going to start asking me lots of questions about this sort of stuff. And I don't want to answer those questions. And so he, he got really hostile with me. I'll never forget it. He, did, he it, was, it was verbally abusive. <laughs> he was, he mm. basically just, shut the fuck up. I don't want to hear it, you know. And, and I was like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. Like – Okay, and it was because it was like an assignment that was really mundane. It was like not a vulnerable sort of question that one would ask, and you realize like, oh man, some people really are defended yeah. about this sort of stuff, which is fine to have, but mm-hmm. not predicted. And so, some people, the sheer fact that you're a therapist really, really threatens their defenses and causes them to be 
hostile in a way yeah. that they don't need to be, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, have you ever experienced that? Uh, that kind of defensiveness? No, I haven't. Though I can say that um, in my own way, I've been obnoxious. <laughs> I'm not saying you were obnoxious. You were just doing a thing for class or whatever. But um, I think that uh, I, um, you know, I think it's sort of like normal development that to whatever degree, everybody becomes a sophomore. You know, sophomore is a great word. It comes from Greek, the word for wise and the word for fool. So a sophomore is a wise fool. It's like a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, right? And in my own way, I've been obnoxious. And um, one of the things that I've discovered is with regard to the quote-unquote pseudo-assessment is if I'm not soft, if I'm not compassionate, then I'm definitely in my own kind of trip and um, uh, doing that pseudo-therapy thing. And this can happen even with clients. If I'm uh, So it's not a bad thing that have happened. What's important about it is pretty much what you were saying, which is that's an opportunity to manage your own counter-transference and to ask what part of me is in this situation. Right. Because I really want to kind of um, that will get in the way of uh, doing good work with somebody or get in the way of my connections with my people. So, you know, we call it countertransference, but that sort of thing uh, gets kicked up in everybody. And um, for me, it's an opportunity. Uh, yeah, that sounds like a fucking therapist word. I, You know, sorry about that, guys. I, let me try that again. When I do that, I'm out of touch with something in me and there's a possibility that that I can be in touch and I've been obnoxious that way so in answer to that person's question Belina's question <laughs> I failed <laughs> yeah uh, yeah I think it's okay to have a sense of humor about that and to recognize that in any kind of endeavor where you get a little bit of knowledge you have a vulnerability to being obnoxious it doesn't really matter what it is it could be yeah. race car driving and you're still going to be a sophomore. Right. Totally. And on the same, uh, uh, so I don't know, the other side of the coin is that it absolutely does help me, and I'm quite positive it helps you, Bob, yeah. in our conflicts. When Imagine if we hadn't become therapists, how proficient we would be in yeah. managing attachment bid conflicts but you know with our spouses or with anybody i completely uh, agree yeah and so uh, you say like you know how does it affect the way you handle conflict is one of your questions Belina. is it absolutely i i can't imagine how poor of a of a <laughs> husband i would be by this point if i had if i hadn't become a therapist uh, becoming a client has helped, but I, I would I would guess eighty percent of my growth has been being a therapist mm. and learning and then applying it to myself and then yeah. seeing myself and my clients or my students and then helping them and then vicariously helping myself. Right. Doing the podcast and thinking about and learning new things and thinking, oh, okay, well, I kind of do that with my wife and. Right. It, it has helped so much that the whole, the whole notion that becoming a therapist makes you obnoxious is is true. But I would, but I would suspect that the majority of for me and I, and I'm assuming for you too, Bob, is mm-hmm. that it, becoming a therapist has made us uh, 
kinder, better listeners, yeah. mm-hmm. better able to own our own feelings, yep. better able to not trigger your spouse, mm-hmm. better able to understand when your spouse is triggered. Uh, I have, I'd like to think that my conflicts have become so much easier to handle now that uh, I've reached a certain point as a therapist. Um, so um, that's what I'll say about that one. I completely agree. Yeah. The other thing I'll say is that, you know, you ask, you know, how do you keep from therapizing your spouse and friends? Uh, and I think I've said this before. I, I don't want to stop therapizing my spouse and my friends <laughs> because, you know, again, why not? <laughs> you know, well, it, people will talk about that in terms of, you know, if you're therapizing, it means you're pathologizing. Right. And that's the opposite of what you actually do. Or being condescending or right. patronizing someone. That's right. not what therapy is. <laughs> therapy yeah. isn't top down in that way or patronizing or condescending. It's it's being a good listener. It's being a good friend. It's it's being loving. It's being empathetic. It's yeah. being understanding. It's um, it's. It's not fake. To be a good therapist is to be fucking real and authentic mm-hmm. and in the room and a human being. And when I am kind of therapizing Bob or I'm therapizing my wife or I'm therapizing my parents, it it is real, man. It's authentic. Yeah. And yeah. there's a part of my brain that's like, okay, don't say this because that's bad to say in the situation. And I've learned that because I'm a therapist. Right. Uh, or a little bit of my attention is spent on, okay, you know, contain their emotions, be, mm-hmm. be a good, helpful listener in this moment. Mm-hmm. Now, that could easily edge into being fake and if, or being professionalized listener yeah. to your friends, right. which, which can be off-putting, which can feel to the person like, oh, you're just treating me like I'm a client, which is kind of condescending it's also kind of distancing it's like okay i'm distancing myself from you and i'm treating you like a client and not like a human being it's also distancing to treat a client like a client in that way (laughs) and not like and not like a human being so uh, do i therapize you know how do i avoid therapizing my spouse i don't because i consider my therapy to be a very authentic real human very core to my being thing and when i do it well to my clients and i do it too well to my friends and family i consider it to, to be one of the highest forms of relationships oh, uh that's nice so uh i don't avoid therapizing them is the thing now Great i will answer. say in the beginning of my career when i didn't really understand that i would sometimes yeah. dip into that i, I would like I had a friend who suffered from alcoholism and I would try to help her with that. And it, I, instead of just being a good friend, instead of right. just listening, instead of um, I, I, I did what I thought I was supposed to do, which mm-hmm. was to, you know, be a coach for her to be sober or something, which is a, we all know, according to Al-Anon, not your job as a friend. Right. And it didn't work, uh, lo and behold. So I didn't understand what therapy is supposed to be, and I applied my misunderstanding of therapy to my friend, and lo and behold, it didn't work. So um, 
So in that instance, it would have been helpful if someone would say, you know, stop therapizing your friends because you don't understand what therapy is yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. Okay, so Bob, I have a question from a patron, patron Balas, who frequently emails in. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing uh, patron Balas's name correctly, but Balas. How do you spell it? B-A-L, so Bal. A with an accent going up to the right mm-hmm. and a Z and an S. Oh. So oh. A with a thing going up to the right, is that an Ah, or an A, or an Eh. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Balas Balas has not told us that we've been messing up the name, so either Balas is very forgiving or or I (laughs) nailed it, which is probably not true. Um, So, Patreon writes, How can someone turn off the internal bad dialogues for a short amount of time? So internal bad dialogues of, you know, and then Ballas gives an example here. When I'm studying at school, my brain goes, okay, let's say you get an A plus for this test, but that doesn't mean you graduate. Okay, let's say you graduate. That doesn't mean you get a job. And if you get a job, that doesn't mean it's going to be a good job. And if it's going to be good, that doesn't mean that they're not going to fire you eventually. Hmm. Well, if they're not going to fire you, that doesn't mean that you're going to be happy even with that job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure, I get it. The healing childhood relational tr- trauma might help. <laughs> but you said it's going to take years. I don't have that much time left, and I can't say my and I can't see my therapist because of the virus. Bob, what do you have to say to that? Wow, yeah. Okay. Well, Um, I don't like the word bad in regard to this dialogue because there is no part of us that is bad or that has some kind of nefarious or devious motive. And in fact, when you think about all living creatures, everything inside the living, a living creature is, um, uh, got a purpose that promotes survival. So even these dialogues that we have, and you could say, I don't know, Kirk, what you think about this, but that humans have a propensity for anxiety because the those of us that are anxious don't get eaten by saber-toothed tigers and so we've sort of um adapted that way and so we have anxiety and this person has this anticipatory anxiety that's about um sort of making sure that i don't um suffer right by pointing out all the ways in which i could suffer and then troubleshooting right which is a way to just describe worry Worry is what I'm going to do to keep myself safe. That's really what worry boils down to. And it's all future tripping. So what I think about this is rather than think of this part of you as bad, think of this part of you as just trying to serve a function and maybe even be interested and curious about what the function is and maybe even love this part of you that works so fucking hard, so hard to keep you safe, to keep you from having a bad life. Right. And then the other thing is, is when we're having anxious thoughts, it's because we're having an anxious body, an anxious experience, an anxious physiologic arousal. And one of the things that's available to us is to simply just pay attention to and feel the feeling. As my old therapist used to say, you know, when you get down to it, Bob, there's really nothing else to do with your feelings but feel them. And so I have a friend who... um I teach DBT with, and she was saying just yesterday that in the middle of the night, she wakes up sometimes 
and she has these anxious worry thoughts. And what she's learned to do is she's a meditator. So what she's learned to do is to simply pay attention to the experience of anxiety as it lives in her body, like her chest or her belly or her urges or wherever it lives, and to put her attention there. And she says it usually takes about 10 minutes and she has to refocus and put her attention in her body dozens of times in 10 minutes, simply because the thoughts are so compelling and so drawing that her attention will come back up into her brain. So if you could think of having an elevator in your body that goes between your stomach and your brain, the elevator will go right up into her brain again and again and again and again and again. So what she has to do is dozens of times in a 10-minute experience is put her attention back on the feeling in her belly. And after about 10 minutes, her body settles and she's able to kind of go back to sleep or pick up a book and read until she's tired again, but she's not so plagued with worry. So that's one possibility. And another possibility, and this actually works, but you can't do it if you have a cardiac condition because it actually can cause a heart attack, is to go get some ice. Get some ice, like one of those, a bag of frozen corn, you know, like or one of those flexi ice packs or a bowl filled with ice water. And hold your breath and put your face in the ice. You have to get your eyelids if you do this. And again, you cannot do this if you have a cardiac condition it it has the it slows your heart rate quickly and it has the potential to cause a heart attack but if your heart healthy it's a perfectly safe thing to do it's like the polar bear club so what you do is you get your eyelids you got to get your eyelids um so if you dunk your face in wa- water for 30 seconds or if you put the frozen bag of corn over your eyelids and hold it there hold your breath and count about 30 seconds and take it off what you'll do is you'll activate this part of your nervous system that helps you calm down it's called the dive reflex And it won't work for, you know, hours. But um, within five minutes, what you might notice, what most people notice is that their bodies feel calmer. They feel less torqued. I know a story about a guy who got through medical school by having a bowl of ice water next to his books. And so every time he'd freak out about how much shit he had to learn and didn't learn yet, he'd dunk his face in the ice water, towel off, and then he could sort of concentrate and go back to studying and learning whatever it is that they cram into in medical school, which is by itself a traumatic experience, I imagine. Have you ever done that so, before? Ice water? Yeah. Oh, fuck yeah. Yeah, we use it at my house when we can't sleep. It's great for insomnia. Yeah. Huh. It literally turns on your parasympathetic nervous system, which is like the opposite of your fight or flight response. So we have these parallel nervous systems inside our bodies. One turns us on and like activates us and gets us ready for what we're going to do if there's danger fight or flight right and that's what activates when we're worried they call that the sympathetic nervous system and then there's the parasympathetic nervous system which is the opposite lots of people think that calm is when my sympathetic nervous system isn't turned on actually it turns out not to be true it's when my parasympathetic system is turned on that i actually get calm And one of the theories about people that worry is that for some reason or other, their parasympathetic nervous system does not turn on fully. And so they're constantly in a state of hypervigilance, maybe low level, maybe not panic, but a constant state of, okay, what if, what if, what if, because their bodies actually aren't calm. So the ice is one way to turn it on. You can also do pace breathing, which is when you inhale for five and you exhale for seven. And what it does is there's some, something about reducing the concentration of carbon dioxide in your blood has this effect on your body and your nervous system. And I can never remember what it is, but it actually has a calming effect. So you breathe in for five and you blow out for seven. Your exhale is just a little bit longer than your inhale. 
you reduce carbon dioxide and and your body can calm down i I've, I've done that i don't like it as well as the ice the ice is really dramatic and useful and it's also a reflex so you can keep doing it over and over and over again and in fact the more you do it the more you hone the reflex so there's actually people that can hold their breath for like minutes at a time and i think the world record is something like 11 or 13 minutes can you imagine underwater for 11 or 13 minutes holding your breath and surviving right but what those folks have done is they've honed their dive reflex to such a point that they can actually tolerate such a long period without air their bodies actually calm down when they're underwater because they've practiced so can you you can't use it as a way to get through life because you don't want to avoid life right but you can use it for these acute moments when you know worry is getting the better of you and it isn't doing you any good um, so this isn't to solve life's problems. It's just to help me when I'm worried and I'm torqued up and I have what you were calling bad thoughts. Yeah, wow. That's a good speech. That is. It's pretty, that's amazing. <laughs> uh, that's what happens when I actually send you questions beforehand. That's amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, because, you know, when I get these questions, I prep a little bit of bullet points. Uh-huh. And so it makes sense that... <laughs> It would help I, you as I well. I teach this a lot. Yeah, I, yeah. It's a DBT thing, so. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, I don't know what I could add to that other than to <laughs> say, yeah, Balas, you're, you know, at the end here, you're like, yeah, sure. I get that healing childhood relational trauma might help. Sure. But you said it's going to take years. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it does take years. And yep. it, through that healing, the intrusive thoughts will reduce so you won't need a coping skill. Um, so that's that's the thing I always sort of point out. Mm-hmm. And I know that's not good news to a lot of people. Um, I like that you say it, though, and that you don't pull any punches, and you're just matter-of-fact about it. Because you're not hitting anybody over the head with anything, but you are introducing them to a part of reality. And yeah. I think that that by itself offers comfort. Yeah, and because we, we, we live in a culture of skills and pills and... You know, that it sells this notion that if you follow these five steps, then you can solve your problem. And people out there, how many times has that actually worked? Yeah. How many times have you looked at those steps or taken that pill? And how many times has it actually solved your problems? Yeah. Uh, it, it, It can, but it usually doesn't. And... Uh, so I know it's it's a bummer. It absolutely is yeah. a bummer. And part of the bummer is grieving the loss of the innocence that is due to the propaganda you've in, internalized from our culture about pills and skills. I, I, would, I would have lots of clients come to me. In fact, it's now kind of a little uh, red flag, uh, supervisees, because I haven't had a new client in a long time, but supervisees will come to me and they're like, oh, I have this client right now who is, you know, who keeps asking me for tools. They, they're, oh. they're yelling at me about, they need tools. They need tools. And there's nothing wrong with tools. Tools are great. I talk about tools all the time. Bob just talked about a tool, the, yeah. you know, dunk your face in cold water thing. If that's a tool. And those are great. But I find that when people are, Host in a hostile, angry way, a very pressured way of just like, I need tools. I find that it's a red flag for a personality disorder that has been plaguing this person for a long time. Mm. And they 
are frequently suffering and have frequently knocked on a lot of doors that have not reduced their suffering. And they are like, culture has told me that there's skills and pills and tools that will solve people's problems. And I'm still over here suffering. I'm still sad. I have these intrusive thoughts. I can't find a way to stop these knee-jerk reactions and I feel empty on the inside and I don't know what to do is there's got to be a therapy out there that's going to solve this problem you psychologists and you psychology people claim to help like what's the deal you know and there's plenty of therapists out there that will say yeah you know uh 10-week dbt course or sure uh, short-term trauma-focused cbt has been empirically proven to cure people, blah, blah. And it's like, we do this to people as well. And I find it to be irresponsible. And I, I, I know it's a bummer, but it's just what I found to be true. It's what's true for me. Uh, everything that I've had to work on, the tools and the skills have helped. But uh, uh, if anyone knows the skills and the tools, it's me. And my problems haven't ended. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's the long game in the end, which is how am I going to heal from the various relational traumas that I've been through so that I don't need the skills and the tools. Right. Um, so, yeah, I get that. But, yeah, just to kind of reiterate some of the things that uh, Bob is saying here, you know, you're sitting there. And these intrusive, what I'm going to call intrusive thoughts, which is nice to frame it that way, because then you Mm -hmm. can externalize it from you. You can be like, these are, this isn't core to me. This is an Mm -hmm. intrusive thought, some voice that I probably internalized from my childhood that was an outside voice that was very critical or shaming or doom, you know, some doom voice that was, I internalized. It's, It's good to externalize that voice. And you're getting this voice of like, okay. You know, sure, you might graduate, but you're not going to get a job. And if you get a job, you're not going to be happy and all these all these worries in the future. And as Bob says, you know, get to the emotion part of that. Mm-hmm. There's a function to that emotion. You're worried. And mm-hmm. what is that? What is that worry uh, concerned with the future? The, or I don't know. Ballas, that's something that you'd want to concern yourself with is what exactly is the emotion being triggered by? That would be an interesting question because it might mm-hmm. not be what the intrusive thoughts are ruminating on. It could be that you're alone. It could be that mm-hmm. you haven't had any human contact in a while because of the coronavirus. And mm-hmm. your body is feeling dysregulated because of the normal human need of human contact is not being met and your sympathetic nervous system is kicking in, fight or flight, and then your brain is just looking for something to freak out about to assign to that feeling. But the feeling came first, and the thoughts came second. And so, knowing Don't that like might, the sensor, knowing that might help a little bit. You know, it it doesn't necessarily take away the feeling, but it gives you a direction. Because a lot of times, what people will do when they have these kinds of intrusive thoughts is they'll be like, "Okay, I just need to stop thinking about that," but hmm. that doesn't take away the feeling. And the other thing people will try to do is, okay, well, let's problem solve, which isn't a bad idea, you know, like uh, to get down to the brass tacks of it. It's like, um, uh, because essentially what you're saying, Ballas, is like, okay, sure, you might actually succeed, but you're not going to be happy. Okay, well, what is 
the road to happiness. Maybe that is something to think about. But mm-hmm. sometimes that doesn't necessarily address it either because, again, deep down, it's not really that – that's not really what the self is concerned about. It's, mm-hmm. it's something more in the now. And that's mm-hmm. what I want people to think about is, like, whenever you're future tripping, mm-hmm. what is happening in the here and now that is provoking you to future trip? What is happening for you right in this moment? Because that's all you have. Your body can't live in the future. Your body is happening right now. and. Right. Our minds can live in the future, but our bodies can't. And our bodies are happening right now. Yeah. Now, we can future trip and cause our body to do something in here and now. But right. uh, thinking about what are my conditions right now that would cause me to be fight or flight afraid right now? Well, nice. co- coronavirus, uh, whatever. Uh, I haven't... I haven't eaten well today. <laughs> or Whatever the thing is, is like, you know, think about... What's going on? But it is an actual good exercise to go on, Ballas. You know, maybe what is the road to happiness? Because that's essentially what you're future tripping about. It's like, well, all these things could fall into place, but I might not be happy. Well, what a wonderful opportunity to be like, okay, so let me think about how can I be happy now? Mm -hmm. And how can Mm -hmm. I cultivate a life that I can reasonably think that I'll be happy in the future? Mm-hmm. How do I begin that cultivation? Is it trying? Is it busting my ass to get an A plus on this test tomorrow? I'm mm-hmm. guessing that isn't a key factor in in one's overall happiness in life. It might be, but I'm guessing it's not because our culture tends to pump a lot of values into us that are counter to our happiness. And so, oh, that's a good sense. We have to think. We have to think hard and. Uh, talk with people who actually are happy, <laughs> you know, like don't follow people that you think are happy. Actually talk to people. Are you happy? And find people who are happy and say like, why are you happy? Mm-hmm. What, what made you happy? How, mm-hmm. how, how did you achieve happiness? Cause I'm guessing they're not going to say, well, I worked 70 hours a week and earned $200,000 a year. That's why I'm happy, man. Am mm-hmm. I a happy person because I pushed myself to be a success according to what society wants me to be. Uh, I'm guessing that's not their answer. Um, That's why I always wanted to work with elderly people and people who were in hospice because they have the perspective sometimes that Mm. can throw, you know, their, their priorities are now in alignment with maybe what we should all be thinking about all the time. Right. Right. Um, and a, a very common thing people will say at that stage of life is, I wish I didn't work so much. Yeah. I wish I spent more time with my friends and family is what they'll say. Right. I, wish I, I wish I spent less time worrying about things. Mm-hmm. And I find that to be very inspirational and yeah. very priority aligning to me right one of the keys to happiness is to live a life that has value and purpose and meaning which of course is going to be individual to each of us and um value might not be in the a plus might be important for some reason but if it's not attached to your values or your meaning or your purpose it's likely to drive you batshit crazy and fill you with angst and potentially with regret yeah yeah 
So, patron Ballas, let's let us know how you think. I know we're in frequent communication, so how did you receive this? And those out there, how did you receive this? If you're yeah. watching on YouTube, comment below. Let us know what you think. And as always, everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it.